I'm James Gortzman. I'm Kristen Cox. Welcome to the Art of Live Ops podcast. Hey, Kristen. So, so today's another podcast you had to fly solo on. I know. You're just too important and busy for uh, me these no, days. Let's not make this a habit. That yeah. would be, that'd be sad. Uh, but today I talked to Jerry Hook. Yeah, I'm Jerry Hook. I'm the live director for 343 Industries and Halo Infinite. Before you were with 343, you were also at Bungie, right? Yeah, I was a live project lead on Destiny, business director for Destiny 2, and yeah, pretty much covers the big gambit. Um, Sorry you missed this one. It was really interesting. Jerry is the live director for Halo Infinite, which is the next Halo game that's going to be coming soon. Uh, And before that, he also worked on uh, Destiny, um, running their live team there. And he has a long history with Xbox Live, where he was one of the principal developers on Xbox Live originally. So he's been in the live world for quite a while. Well, the Halo franchise was famously one of the kind of classic packaged goods games. So the fact that Halo franchise now has a live director really talks to sort of the, the how live ops is really starting to grow, even in the top-end console space. Yeah, absolutely. He had some really interesting insights into how LiveOps has affected AAA. So let's get into it, and you can hear the interview for the first time yourself. All right. So you've been in the industry for a while, and you've mostly been in the AAA space. Yeah. But recently... The AAA space has uh, gotten a lot more interested in this thing we call live ops. Yeah. So how have you seen the relationship of you know big sort of AAA developers to this idea of sort of games as a service, live ops, live games? Yeah. So uh, primarily, I think you really take a look at it if you go back to MMO days is really the first foray into what services would look like for gaming um, and the industry really shifting away from just DLC models into more regular updates. And a lot of that driven from players' expectations, both from a mobile perspective, that mobile's always um, uh, touchable. Players can always grab it off their phone or off their their tablets, uh, whatever their favorite device is, and um, enjoy an experience. And so that's led sort of to changes in player behaviors that um, they're expecting their hobbies to be readily available for them. Mm -hmm. And how do you see the reaction from AAA developers to those changing desires from that player base playing out? Well, there's the bad side where they went so heavy on the mobile side that I think they hurt everybody with over monetization. Um, And then I think there's just the good side. And the, the good side is, is, you know the the hope of I think any quality entertainment is, is that you're you're providing regular updates um, uh, for your for your customer for your players and for TV shows we know that is episodes um, mm-hmm. every week um, or in Netflix now that you're releasing an entire show at once but you're still releasing it from an episodic perspective to allow your players to take a breather. Um, or your customers to take a breather from watching their their show, not necessarily binge watching it all in one sitting, um, but allowing them to basically uh, have fun with their entertainment um, in the time frame that they want to. And that's that goes more to what live ops is, I think, all about for triple gaming, which is how do you bring players um, their hobby and their experiences uh, in the way that they live and the way that they actually consume entertainment nowadays. And it's not always in one giant sitting of, you know, 
10 to 20 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always in uh, not recognizing that the market is pulling people entertainment-wise to TV, more movies, more streaming, music. Everything has become so more readily accessible that as a game industry, we've had to try to do the same thing. It's like, how can we always be there? And always be there is always provide an experience that is new and fresh to the players. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at a company like Bungie, um, working in this sort of, we think of them, I think, mostly as a very, like, multiplayer-focused, you know, first-person shooter. That, you know, And so for a console game, they've actually been doing quite a lot of connected experiences for a long time. And what was that like when, yeah, they had actually, I think, a lot of, um, I would imagine, a lot of knowledge about their player base and the way their player base interacted with their games, not just as one piece of consumable content, but over time. When you guys were getting ready to move into making Destiny, which was being built sort of from the ground up to be much more persistent, what was what was your kind of expectation for how different that experience was going to be for players versus the experience they'd been having with Halo in the past? Yeah, so um, wasn't with Destiny from the very beginning. Okay, um, you missed some of the early conversations, some of the early early things. But the main thing when you look at after Destiny launched um, and when I joined to help create the the live game um, uh, of Destiny, it was the differences between what I would consider sing- singular activity-focused models versus multiple activity-focused models. And so there is a huge difference both in both cost as well as expectations for players when it comes to multiplayer versus uh, single-player PVE um, mm-hmm. experiences. And um, that shift is probably the hardest thing from a balanced perspective of, of getting live ops correct. Um, it's something that we struggled with um, heavily with with Destiny to to I think get to to a good place, um, but as anyone who's followed Destiny at all, it's a learning experience, and mm-hmm. every single title is going to be different. Um, and it was it was interesting when when we first when I first came on board with. Uh, my creative director, uh, Emmy Chung, we went to Blizzard and like we're like, man, we're going to get a bunch of time with the WoW team. We're gonna, man, these guys have been doing it for 20 years. It's going to be amazing. They're going to help us understand what do, what do we need to do mm-hmm. and uh, sit down with that team. And they were like, yeah, we don't know. We don't, we don't have any answers for you. Um, here's a bunch of stuff that we've tried and it's worked and hasn't worked. And it's, it's because it is, you're, you're always refining and also at the same time your players are always changing their own expectations. And so then you're going to have to shift and then you have to. And so it's, it's the, that, it comes down to that fundamental, which is the bottom line from a live ops perspective is how you're going to listen to your players and how you're going to regularly meet their expectations. And that's really hard because your designers are usually working, you know, three to six months ahead of where the players are at. So some of the feedback the players are giving, you know, you're like, yeah, we got that ready for you. And some of the feedback they're giving, they're like, oh, my gosh, that would cause a complete turnover of right. of this system. And uh, I don't know if we can support that in a year, let alone the next, you know, three to six months. Um, and so the that early phase of trying to figure out what the live game of Destiny w- would look like. Um, just revolves around, hey, what are you going to do as a team? How do you want to support it? What is your vision for what what that works um, or and how that works? And it's pretty much, I think, something that um, as 
all of our lives, all of our entertainment, whether it be school, work, or whatnot, we have all these other time pressures on us to consume entertainment. And what you're trying to do from a game developer's perspective is you're trying to understand, like, where do you fit into that? How can you fit into the mix? And how can you become a part of somebody's top time mm -hmm. um, uh, desires, basically, or wants? Um, and so you're really meeting their needs at, from a hobby perspective. And so for Destiny, it is like you do have to know how you're trying to um, ensure that engagement is the top thing of mind. Like how, how much a player engages with you matters more than anything else. Mm -hmm. um, revenue counts. Like you need to have that revenue to keep the doors open and support your studio. But with, without satisfying the players and without meeting their needs – You'll never, you'll never make money, and everyone can point to a thousand and one live service examples and games that have been done done at the opposite, yeah. where monetization is first and player engagement or player happiness is second, um, and that doesn't tend to go very well. Not um, for long. Not for long. Um, and so, at least from a Bungie and a Destiny perspective, the mentality was always um, put the player first. What does right. that mean? I think uh, I love that answer you got from the WoW team because yeah. I think that's the that's the true answer from a real live team. Like a real team that really understands live ops is going to tell you it's actually about iteration. Like it's yeah. actually about experimentation and iteration and letting the players help you discover the game you have. Like you have a lot of the games I've worked on have absolutely been like this where we before we launched Guild Wars 2 we had a very like specific idea about what Guild Wars 2 was and what the player experience was going to be like. And then it happens so fast after it goes live that all changes. Yeah. And you have to kind of be there ready to let the game teach you what it's really about, let the player base teach you who they really are. How do you work with a team like the Halo team at 343 which has been making these incredibly polished, incredibly high-end experiences for many iterations and help them get into this headspace that's actually we're not going to have all the answers when this game goes live. Yeah, that's actually there, – there's several things there um, because it's true, and this this was true with Destiny. Um, frankly, I think it was true for, for WoW and Diablo as well. Mm -hmm. When you're creating something new, you, your your players will have a different perception than you do. Like things mm -hmm. that you think are important, your players may tell you, uh, no, don't care. Yeah. Right? And that is the hardest piece. Um, and trying the, the first thing you try to train, or at least what we're trying to do, is we want to try to help make sure that um, feedback in particular and how you take feedback, how you learn, how to, how to trust feedback, mm -hmm. um, is probably one of the hardest things to do from a development standpoint because you're taking a very crafted experience that your experience and what you want to do and your passion to create this art form and get that art form out and establish it, right? And your players may, may quite frankly, say, no, I like the color blue and used red too much, right? Yeah. Stuff like that happens, and that's probably the hardest part, I would say, of, of any live game where you make a bet and that bet doesn't pay off. Um, and so what you're trying to do is you're trying to set the team up to, before you, get, you finish development, before you're done with it, you're already in the mode of how you ship, how you develop a feature, everything – 
in in the the way that you know that you're going to have to run as a live game moving forward. Um, and so it's, it is a little different. It will never be on par because you, you're still trying to finish the primary, the, the main game. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you're trying to finish the main game, though, you can at least develop muscle rhythm that helps you know how the team's going to work, how you are going to work with feedback, how you're going to exercise and make decisions, as well as how you're going to make sure you're running your business effectively. Um, all of that comes into play. And from a player experience perspective, the thing you're also trying to do is you, you're trying to expand, whether it be an early view of the game, you're trying to do that way sooner than what most AAA developers are used to doing. Um, and But you, you see, even today with like Apex Legends and others who have just said, nope, we're just going to go out there and we're just going to mm-hmm. learn. But I also always point back to League of Legends and how League of Legends originally um, grew as well, which was pure, just like get it out there, let your hobbyists blossom, let let your community grow and let them have a voice. And mm-hmm. how you let them have, have that voice into the development cycle is, is, is pretty critical for long-term success of any live game. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that example about League is really prescient because... I actually think as the AAA space starts to look more towards live ops, because players are like, "Yeah, I want, I want more content. I want, I want to have a whole community experience around this game. I want it to be my hobby." We start to look at things like League of Legends as great, you know, examples. But I think there is an element there that League didn't really have to deal with, which is this set of expectations, yeah. which exist from the, tri- especially the AAA console player yep. expectations are very high. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, they are, and most of that though is in the. Uh, it's it's one of these challenges, right? You, if you were to try to develop an MMO, for example, today, mm-hmm. you would have to meet all the expectations of what WoW is today, plus all of its mistakes fixed, plus like we've just yeah. incrementally over decades said, "Hey, this is what you have to be for me to like your experience," mm-hmm. um, and that's absolutely true. And even League, I think. Uh, League struggles with trying to get new stuff out because they 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 aren't doing the same things they were in the past. They aren't just letting things out there to test, mm-hmm. um, to let the players tell them what worked and what didn't work. Um, and I think you have to have more than that. I think you have to have moments in, in two ways in which the community can say, hey, look, here's a bite-sized thing, guys. This is what we're thinking about. We're going to create maybe a mini event around this for mm-hmm. you. And we, we just want what worked, what didn't work, right? And be okay. Like, that's the hardest thing, I think, for any development team. Be okay to fail. Be okay yeah. to get out there and go, oh, oh, that did not work at all. <laughs> um, yeah. I think sometimes we don't trust our player base enough, though. Yeah. Because I will say, and this I'm totally tainted because I worked mostly in really long-running MMOs. Sure. But um, those communities are so resilient, actually. Especially if you communicate with them, especially if you're engaged in a dialogue back and forth. I do sometimes think um, we don't really trust the players enough to be okay with us letting them in a little bit more. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with that. I, I, I think Halo in particular has some struggles that I don't think Destiny had. Like Halo had the long history of Halo puts us some somewhat in some boxes of what the Halo hobbyists wants to be able to have that if you step outside as as you can read any Halo post over any title, any title, like any Bungie developed title or three for three developed title of what they don't like. Like mm-hmm. you change this, therefore it, it sucks now, type right. of thing. Right. As well as the difference between 
um, a pure PVE experience versus a competitive experience because those bring their own challenges of is this actually going to be competitive? Do I actually feel like I can I can be successful? Um, as well as today's live games, the other things you have to worry about isn't just about the game itself, but it's about the content creators who basically support your game from streamers to uh, podcasters to um, all these elements that are outside your ecosystem uh, entirely in how they're able to interface with with your content mm-hmm. um, and how you're providing mechanisms for them to be supportive in the live game as well. Um, and a bunch of that is is definitely new muscles that game developers have to think about that they've never thought about before. Mm-hmm. But again, at, the, at its core, it, it's what you said, which is we do have to trust our players a little bit more that we can create a game experience and they'll be they want to see us succeed too because they're a part of the hobby, right? Right. Um, which means anyone who's passionate about anything, as anyone knows who's ever been in a game, because there's lots of passion there, um, passion comes with uh, a lot of emotion. Yeah. And um, it's it's not a negative thing. It's, it's something that if you harness correctly, you learn from, um, and you know that you're going to make some mistakes stumbling along the way um, while you do so. But as long as you're open and honest with your player base, what are you trying to do? What are you going for? And a dialogue with them, whether it be feedback mechanisms or uh, direct dialogue, whether it be community events or whatnot, the more you provide that so that you realize that they're a part of your development effort, I think the better long-term your game is going to be. Yeah, you're hitting on something. We've been um, sort of developing this idea for a while around looking at the industry through the lens of we sort of started from a place of games as product. We moved to a place of games as service. But... I really feel like we're moving out of that era into what I'm trying to get everyone to agree to call games as community because it really is so much more, I think, of what you're talking about there, which is it's not just us serving them. It's actually there's a dialogue going on back and forth and there's actually give and take happening. And it really is about managing them as a community of people. Yeah. The way I say it is, so I've started using this in Twitter for a very similar reason, Mm -hmm. uh, reason, which is uh, community is the end game. Right. Right. And if you view community as the end game and you realize that 90% of your game is consumed in the end game, um, then you should be treating your community with that level of focus. Right. Um, but it is hard. Like there's a lot of muscle there that you have to learn as a developer that you are you may not be used to. Mm-hmm. Right. It's not just – it's literally working with your strong designers who have created – um, amazing worlds and amazing vision for things and learning how to, like, how do we pick on things in a regular cadence to enable it to get into the game as uh, as fast as we can, but also that your your success uh, comes from nurturing and ensuring that your community is successful. And this is where the shift to content creators, content creators being, uh, like, YouTube streamers or Twitch mm-hmm. streamers or whatnot. That's what I mean when I say content creators. That they they can be successful with their hobby as well because right. they are also feeding your hobby. Like mm-hmm. they're feeding all their fans that are, that are coming to them for information about your title that even though you may have posted it on your website, for some reason no one's going there and right. they're just waiting for someone to stream and talk about it. That's right. Because <laughs> it's got to come wherever they want to be. Exactly. You don't get to control where they see your message anymore. Exactly. And that's so critical because that's a hilarious, hilarious 
hilarious thing is like you can spend all this time investing in all of these oh, things. Yeah. It's like we have it all for you right here. And they're like, yeah, but if it's not on YouTube, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Or if it's not on Twitch, I haven't seen it. It's like, okay. I'm not coming to your website. Exactly. Like, what's uh. a, I mean, at some point it'll be, what's a website? What I know. is that thing? <laughs> well, this is something I think is funny because um, – the whole games industry, I think, has a, a reputation for over-indexing on forum posts. We mm-hmm. love forum posts. And I used to laugh at it because, especially working on so many kids' games earlier in my career, I'd just be like, you know nobody under the age of 35 looks at a forum, right? <laughs> like, the, like this is forums are very much sort of this much older generation's venue. If you want to, yeah, like, so much of your community is going to be like, no, no. I mean, I'm only going to watch YouTube or I'm going to be yep. over here. Um, and it's hard to keep up with that. Yeah. You know, the, the community keeps changing. It grows and it, it evolves. Even on a game, I mean, I imagine you saw this on, on Destiny for sure. The community that's there day one is not the community that's there day 365. Even if they might even be made up of kind of the same people, their relationship to the game has changed. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully you've kept them with you, but it's changed with the game as well, right? Yeah. And, you know, again, the great the great thing about the, the team at Bungie is – They've always put the player first. They've always put the the community first. Yes, there's always stumbles along the way, like we've talked about, but um, they've never uh, looked at uh, the community, like the true community view, through mm-hmm. a single Reddit post or right. a single Twitter post. Or it's never viewed that way. Mm-hmm. It's always viewed in a in a larger sense. So you, so you don't, if you swing the pendulum too hard on just one of those emotional swings you'll end up destroying yourself, right? Yeah. Um, and you talked before about so much of the challenge of getting a big AAA team ready to go live is to get them used to this feedback loop. Yeah. And when you talk about the feedback loop, I assume you're talking about both qualitative feedback, but also data. Yep. Absolutely. And that has been, I think, for me, one of the challenges that I've uh, dealt with a lot in my career is sort of retraining designers to use data mm-hmm. um, and moving from a place of a balanced place, moving to a balanced place where you need data because you need information, but you also need the perspective of a designer from the human psychology perspective. Yep. And then how do you mesh those together? So how are you guys getting ready to actually like consume all of this player data? Yeah. And so a lot of that is also um, changing the way, uh, you formulate data. So mm-hmm. the uh, user studies are one thing, but we know that they have severe limitations when it comes to the human psychology of going into a study and everyone trying to be smart, for oh, example, yeah. um, instead of just being <coughs> themselves. And so um, we're trying to do more what we're calling flighting programs or programs mm-hmm. with small groups of people who who we can trust or signs an NDA, but then we grow it. And part of part of that of why you start small is because you don't have all your muscles. And one, the, usually the people who are looking at the, the game at that point, it's like everything's gray box. There's right. nothing. Like you have to have a high tolerance for low working code mm-hmm. um, at, at that point. But you're you're trying to train all your muscles, how you get your builds out, how you get, how you get feedback from those individuals, how you pull that in. And for us, everything goes into um, our, it's basically our central database for both feedback. It sits right alongside of our bugs. Mm-hmm. And, and that the, the goals we have is that that feedback is triaged by the organization. It's prioritized. Mm-hmm. And so instead of having to do, uh, usually you'll always have a scramble for patch notes. And mm-hmm. what you want to be able to do is 
beyond just patch notes of what finally gets out there, you also want to be able to help your audience understand the intent. Right. And a lot of the challenges you have from a data perspective is understanding the intent of perception, mm-hmm. subjective data versus actually quantifiable data of what, what's actually going on in game. And what you may see in, in, in general with a lot of games, especially uh, the scope of, of Destiny or even what you see with hardcore uh, multiplayer games, is um, you have to balance those two because your data may be showing, hey, guess what? Everything's just fine. Right. But perception is so wrong that mm-hmm. you've got to figure out, like, why? Like, what is it? And some of it's very, very small things. Like, some things, for example, on changing difficulty for things, you can do call-outs, you can do other things within the AI to help the player understand that something's being ramped up that may not be there, and so you can help control perception of reality of what's actually going on in the game. Even though nothing's changed, Right. you're just helping them understand. And th- that's where your data won't show you why sometimes emotional responses are occurring, and that's why you need both sides, which is the human side, as well as what's actually going on in the game engine. Yeah, I mean, it can be so dangerous to just follow data, right? I um, I use this example quite a lot when I'm talking about monetization, where I sort of point out that if you just look at data for purchasing, you would never find out that you mispriced something, because usually when people look at purchasing data, they operate under this assumption that the price is correct if a lot of people pay it. Yep. But that assumption assumes all kinds of things about free market equilibrium that never exist inside of a video game ecosystem. And so I think that people can sometimes get this idea that like data can't lie to me. Data is always pure and true. <laughs> but you can have five people look at a piece of data and come away with completely Absolutely. different conclusions yep. about it. And you can even have a meeting about that data where you're being very specific and they will still walk away with a different perception. And that's, you know, our own propensity to, I guess, believe our own lies or what we want to be true versus what what we're trying to do. But the other thing is also being truthful about what the data is true, really telling you versus not. Right. And also you being clear of like, guys, this is what I think we're saying. We're going to go forward with this. But Mm -hmm. here is the data test I need to help validate our next step to see if we're right or wrong. Yeah. Right. And that's something that when you when most video games, for example, mobile does this really, really well. Mm-hmm. AAA does not know how to do this primarily because the cost to do it is very hard. But when you look at true A-B testing of uh, data segments mm-hmm. where you can literally give a feature to 10% of your players and the other 10% or the other 90% don't get it. And mm-hmm. so you can literally see side by side what's going on. AAA can't do that because right. the cost to try to develop new systems, put it in the game and do a whole separate build and distribution is just too expensive today. Yeah. Um, but we we do have to start pushing in a bunch of those rounds to help us really demystify really what the data is trying to tell us. And, and pricing definitely is is one of those things. And we have an economist on our team that you know, brilliant brain, can't touch it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it's it's that type of expertise that you look for to help you answer some of the harder questions. Yeah. Um, that that logically you may think one way, but reality shows you. It's another. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on it there. I think something that's always fascinated me about the role of A-B testing in games is how unavailable it really is for a lot of games, both because of the costs of you're talking about. But I know we worried about it significantly when I was working on Guild Wars 2 was crosstalk. Like, we didn't want to create a situation in which one group of players got something, a different group of players got something else. They didn't understand why their experiences were different. 
they didn't understand how to parse those differences. We were like, that is going to create an incredible amount of confusion and, and sort of uproar. So it becomes very difficult to make a sort of scientifically valid A-B yeah. experiment. Yeah, and the difference is is because you don't see in mobile, when a mobile game does this, right? King does this regularly, mm-hmm. for example, right? Mobile game does this, does an experiment for a different feature set to cre- try to create a specific behavior or solve a specific behavior. And no, no one goes to Reddit and posts about their different experiences, yeah. right? It's, whereas a AAA game, like you would see that. Immediately. Immediately. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't even be a like, a okay, we'd press the button literally 10 minutes later. I mean. Top of Reddit. <laughs> we used to see incredible amounts of crosstalk when I worked on MapleStory just between, because MapleStory, um, the way it's distributed is it's actually a separate client for re, per region. Got it. So the Chinese version of MapleStory, there's a North American version of MapleStory. Um, and all of those teams actually run independently. And so we would actually, so um, I was running the team for Global MapleStory, which was North America, Europe, um, sort of rest of world. And we had our own content, you know, plan and our own strategy. We would have, as soon as MapleStory China got an update, our players would be coming back to say, we've translated all of their patch notes. This is everything that they got. Why are we going to get this? When are we going to get that? Like, why do they have this and we don't have that? That crosstalk was incredible. I think that the trade-off, though, when I look at mobile, I see one of the weaknesses of mobile is the lack of that crosstalk is sort of a symptom of how underdeveloped their communities yeah, often are. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, as well as their their stickiness is 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 AAA gaming relies more on its community for sure than than mobile. Though I think you'll start seeing ch- changes in that regard because of how much more powerful the mobile devices are getting. Yeah. Right. And I think if you can get if you can get them mobile gaming in general to turn in like standard gaming, stopping so much about monetization and actually be about an experience first. Um, like what I think most good AAA developers try to do, right? Mm-hmm. Create that experience first, make sure you have a solid game. Um, and yes, you want to provide extra stuff for those, those hobbyists who want to continue to invest um, and build more of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that actually, I mean, that, that's the big difference. When we did live originally for, for Destiny, the goal was that, that the, the live team was paying for itself. Right. right, and that that was the goal that we had, and um, and the the focus that we had, and it was all because of the community. It was all because hey, we had to listen to the hobbyists, we had to listen to the players who were dedicated to the game. What are they looking for? What aren't they looking for? Looking for, and um, yeah, if mobile games can get away away from their over monetization and just go to experiences first, especially with the 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 strength and the power of our devices now, mm-hmm. we should be able to get really strong quality experiences wherever you go. But of course you have things like xCloud and whatnot who are going to yeah. help you do that anyways. Yeah. And so everyone- They might be the same games. They might be the same game, exactly. <clears throat> and so, uh, you know, community comes with you because, you know, again, community is the end game, is the heartbeat that is to me going to make or break you. Yeah. If, and I think that's the reason. I think we will see that change in mobile. I mean, I think um, when you look at the trajectory of the way sort of uh, free-to-play and uh, live ops games have gone, mobile, I think, has been in this world that's very focused at the beginning of the experience, very focused on top of funnel, very yep. focused on acquiring players. Now I do see them transitioning to caring a lot more about long-term relationships, and that's just going to lead you down the road where you've got to develop that community Correct. in order to compete, honestly. I yep. mean, especially as things like xCloud happen, 
they've got to compete to keep their players engaged when their other options might be something that that you could be richer. Yeah, and but not only that, but I think what what you see with most of the streaming services, whether for for gaming in general, again, that's just going to. I just want to play my game, mm-hmm. right? And really, wherever I'm at, I'm going to play my game. And that obviously, it does take money to run these types of games more sure. than what we used to, just stamping a disc and sending it out and then mm-hmm. going on to the next game. It's not about that anymore. It is about the health and the care of your community because if you have a strong community that moves with you, you can't beat that. Like, yeah. it, it's you, you, you can do. You can basically take your game as a platform and say, hey, look, how am I going to build off of this? How am I going to help make sure that I'm continuing to add things that, that that we want instead of having to reboot every year, right, and 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 do that model, which I think is going to break because I don't think players, one, are going to continue to pay it at that rate. Um, but also I don't think they need to if you have a strong, strong enough IP as well as you're regularly feeding them. Um, you should be able to to keep them uh, not only happy with brand new experiences, um, but also happy because you're not constantly sacking them in the wallet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think to me when I look at um, – I sort of moved over to free-to-play really early in the 2000s and uh, working mostly in Korea and – to me, it's always been to this trajectory of the game industry just becoming more and more sensitive to the players' demands and being player centric. Yeah. Because I know it, it can. There's a lot of complicated like emotions and feelings around the the move in the industry to free to play. Yeah. But from a very like dispassionate point of view, if you pull back, a lot of that move has been moving away from a model where we say. Give us $60 now and trust us. Every It's going to be great. To a model where we say, you're going to pay us after we prove it. After we prove it to you and you're going to pay for what you want to pay for, which is a, a significantly more sort of um, customer-friendly or like consumer-friendly yeah. model. And I think we're just going to keep seeing that happen. We, yeah. you know, The value has to go up because our... Because our audience has become more mainstream and they're more sophisticated. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the thing is is you you're already training a generation on that entire mindset, right? Mm-hmm. All all the kids today who are playing eighty to ninety percent on their mobile phones ha- have an expectation for like, no, I don't pay you something until you tr- until I trust you that you're going to be able to produce things that I like, right? Yeah. Um, and I help. I in part of my time at Destiny was helping to expand into Korea and mm-hmm. the 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 Asian view of content is so very different yeah. um, than the Western view, um, but there's very strong similarities, um, specifically when it comes to to some of the monetization. Not all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, the Asian market way f- seems to be way happier with doing pay to win, yeah. where Western market doesn't accept it at all. Um, and I actually think long term, again, that's another trend that will will change even in Asia because yeah. it's not sustainable. No. And I think when I look at the the games that I was able to work closely with in Asia and like actually see data for, I don't I think that that's that difference can be overhyped in the Western development community. With I, I hear a lot of people like to say things like, oh, the Chinese players are totally fine with pay to win. <laughs> Which is not entirely true. I think it's a little disingenuous. Uh, I think you have to look at the context at which that stuff is presented to them and the way that 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 sort of played out. And then I often go to looking at examples in the West, like um, like Clash of Clans. Yeah. 
and say there are absolutely contexts in which something that we might consider pay to win is is accepted, but it's actually a pretty narrow context, yeah, yeah. no matter where you are in the world. Yeah. And a lot of Asian players are playing a lot of Western games partially because they really like the value that comes from playing those games. They get a lot for their money and they care about that. They're like anybody else. Everyone cares about value. Yeah, and again, I think it, it's the the piece with any monetization side, I think that we just all have to be careful is we do have to be able to run our studios, right? And they right. are they are more expensive mm-hmm. um, than um, at least a bunch of the videos I I have watched where people are surmising, no, everything everything <laughs> is inexpensive, and it's like no, if only, no, they, if only, and especially the, and again, you, we go back to expectations on the AAA games uh, side huge expectations and great quality graphics, great stories, mm-hmm. great cinematics, right? Great, uh, well thought out and quality gameplay. All that takes a lot of expertise and experienced people to go and make make that work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you, when you look at pay to win or any of those uh, other monetization efforts, it, it's really more about like, what is the game you're trying to have, right? Mm-hmm. And so if if you want a Clash of Clans um, t- type of game, don't in my head I can't see a AAA game ever doing that. But right. it, if that's a game that you like and you're and you're willing willing to feed, um, that I guess that's fine for you. I just think in the AAA game space, I think the expectation is more that you have to enable your your players are looking for quality entertainment. Sp- first which is they can just sit down and enjoy your game right they don't have to open their wallet over and over again to do it right they can just sit down and enjoy their game right and this is like your the free-to-play comment you were making free-to-play is more to me again i would use that same mentality which is for triple a if you can't sit down and just enjoy your game first then no one's ever going to open their wallet yeah. in the future i think today i agree with you i think we especially now like <laughs> Wow, the amount of trust that people are putting in us to put sixty dollars down first before they've played the game that's 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 crazy like and it, we should it, respect it's something that. we should definitely respect and and put a lot of effort i mean this is where I think game pass and other things to help help players be able to play full titles, realize that they can trust them um and then go out and purchase it. I think will always be a benefit for players, yeah, I think one of the things that's been interesting watching. Free to play really come to the West and sort of have this big moment in mobile and social and now get folded back into more of the mainstream has been watching Western developers learn a lesson uh, that I think some of some of the Asian developers were ahead of them a little bit, oh, yeah. which is um, it's a little crass, but to say we we need to learn to be uh, less thirsty. <laughs> uh, we just we, you know, yeah. it, it's it's not actually a great look to players when we come to them so aggressively so quickly yes. can you give us money can you give us money can yes. you give us money yeah. you know we have to kind of play it cool we have we have to be um in a relationship with them yeah. first and earn that trust before we get there and i um i talked to some teams about ethical monetization um and you know the thing we don't talk about that much is we need to treat our players right. Like we need to be a positive influence. We need to be a, a pro-social um, relationship with people. That's no guarantee they're going to treat us right. And that is really where a lot of the the tension comes from. Sure, uh, is we need to treat them right, and then we have to hope 
that they're going to come back and say, yes, I agree. I did find the value, and yep. now I am going to open my wallet. And that's the, the one of the stats. 10, 15% of your players will, will pay what you would expect them to pay, right? Right. And it's just like you just you have to build on that. And I think this comes back to the earlier conversation we had, which is you do have to just trust your players, yeah. right? There are always going to be people who, whether they're young kids and they just don't ha- have a means in mm-hmm. which to buy everything. But that's that's if you're building a free-to-play game, you're building a game in which those players can convert their time into the results that they need to, again, show off their uh, their investment in your hobby, right? right. Um, and other ways in which your your players can invest in you is is critical for studios to run themselves. But it, if if you again, if you're having to do that right up front, or you're saying thirsty or desperation would be another word, <laughs> um, it, it could just go go horribly, horribly wrong for you. Yeah. Right? So I think we're just about out of time, but okay. there's one question that yeah. we like to ask everybody who sits down here. It's one of our favorite ones, which sure. is, can you share a live ops disaster with us? Oh, let's see. And we like to put you on the spot for it so that we get the real answer. The real answer. Um, interesting. So the main thing I would say in, in a real live ops disaster, um, man, almost all the ones I would have in my head are public. Okay. So I think they're okay. But anytime in Destiny, for example, where... We would make a balance patch that would um, nuke a favorite toy of most of uh, the player base. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- again, you're seeing it within 10 minutes that you realized, oh, oh crap. Um, and then you have to turn around and uh, turn it on. Um, actually, probably my biggest disaster mm-hmm. doesn't have to do with Destiny. It has to do with Xbox Live. Okay. So as a founding member of Xbox Live... When we first turned on Xbox Live and Xbox uh, 360, so I did all of the Xbox Live marketplace side, and we had a tool called uh, Batman. Mm-hmm. And the goal of Batman was to help us convert old accounts and new accounts and get everything situated in the new databases. And um, we went live, we pressed the button, and about 10, 15 minutes later, my head of developer, development came to me and said, we have a problem. Batman has just nuked about 300,000 accounts. Oh, no. And the thing was, it wouldn't prevent them from logging in, but it would prevent them from buying and doing all these other things. Oh, no. And so literally 72 hours straight, because we couldn't reverse, we couldn't, re, we didn't have a tool to reverse any of those efforts. Uh-huh. And so what we had to do is by hand go into every single account, and it was three of us, me, Literally by hand, 72 hours straight. We didn't sleep. Oh, no. We had food and shift to our office, and we just sat there and doing nothing. And the support tools at the time, because we had to do it manually, the support tools at the time, now, this is not a joke, support tools, you do an edit, you do something, you submit it, could take up to five minutes. Oh. For 300,000 accounts. Wow. It was a nightmare. That, that is the bad. worst live ops situation ever. Um, but we never heard about it in the press because we fixed it. Because you fixed it fast enough. Even if it was manual, we fixed it fast enough. And wow. that's probably the the tail live ops, both on on when you look at the Destiny example of balance and everything else. Or um, those are always stories that 
you're listening to your players and you're saying, how fast could, can, can we convert this? How yeah. fast can we remove something and get it back in or change something uh, to better meet our needs? Or in, in a lot of cases, specifically from a balance perspective, the hard part is, is you're some balance you expect rage because when you rebalance your 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 sandbox, you're changing the meta that everybody right. understands, yeah. right? And that instant that change causes instant emotional visceral. You've destroyed my right. favorite way of playing. Yeah. This is the way I like, and now it's no longer viable. But that's ultimately healthy, healthy, Correct. right? Healthy long term, yeah. right? And so you don't necessarily always want to pull back on that. Yeah, but it always feels horrible yeah. doing having the whole team just sit here and just take. Absolute fire from their community um, until either A, they figure it out and they develop a new meta, or B, you find out you were actually wrong and the value you put in for a specific weapon was incorrect and oh. you do have to revert it and, and oh. change it on the spot as fast as you can. Oh, um, man. Yeah. Balance designers have the thickest skin in the industry. Uh, they do. They're amazing. I, I really like it. Tyson Green over it at Bungie was um, – just an amazing individual to be able to deal with uh, a lot of this, as well as, frankly, all of the, you know, Josh Hamrick and the Sandbox team and mm-hmm. what they had to deal with um, all the time was just insane to me. Um, and I wasn't always the nicest guy either when I had to deal with it at the <laughs> leadership perspective. But what um, are you guys doing? Yeah. The players are all burning. They've got yeah. pitchforks. But stepping back, I mean, the thing I always appreciated was, you know, Emmy Chang was always a voice of reason and. Um, all the team members, uh, Ryan Parody, you know, all, all of them were just so solid, so good, able to provide feedback, able to go through things reasonable, reasonably. And um, I just I appreciate them more uh, and more as time goes on. Yeah. You realize how much they had to go through. Um, just uh, amazing. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this absolutely. was awesome. Yeah, thanks thank a lot. Thanks for listening to the Art of Live Ops podcast. If you liked what you heard, remember to rate, review, and subscribe so others can find us. And visit playfab.com for more information on solutions for all your Live Ops needs. Thanks for tuning in.